we have better mitochondria that respire, they produce more energy. And what was more interesting is that these worms with better mitochondria, they were healthier, they were moving more, they were moving faster. Ultimately, they were living longer. Human OS. Learn. Master. Achieve. Welcome back, everyone. Today, I have with me Dr. Davide D'Amico. Davide, welcome to the show. Tell us about where you work and the type of work that you do and when you became interested in the aging field. Hi, Dan. First of all, thank you very much for inviting me here today. It's a great pleasure. I'm a research scientist in the field of metabolism and aging. I'm, as you said, interested in the field of aging and in particular of mitochondrial biology. If you ask me why I got interested in aging, there are two main reasons. One is that we are all in the process of aging. And to me, it's quite exciting to understand what is happening in our body and getting more in detail in our tissues and in our cells when we age. And understanding this mechanism could lead to new strategies to slow down the aging process. And the second reason is that a deeper understanding of aging, it's very important to understand other aging-related diseases. I'm talking about neurodegenerative disorders and similar. Tell us about the company that you're working for at the moment. I'm working with a Swiss-based biotech startup. It's called Amazentis. And Amazentis is working on advanced, innovative nutritional strategies. And the goal is to improve cellular health using compounds derived from natural products. And I would say this is a nice follow-up of what I did in my previous studies as a PhD, as a postdoc, as a scientist. And let's say that the goal after many years in a lab was to apply my scientific expertise in something that was more translated, more applied in a product that could be useful for to improve the health of people. Mitochondria are unquestionably one of the areas that I am most interested in. So why don't we lay a little groundwork here? Talk about mitochondria and how they regulate cellular health, how cells will build new mitochondria, and how cells will exercise quality control when certain mitochondria within the cell stop to function properly. Yes, I mean, mitochondria are essential organelles in our cells. Basically, all kinds of cells contain mitochondria, except red blood cells. And we can consider the mitochondria as powerhouses of our cells. They're really the hub where most of the energy is produced to make our cell work properly. And then mitochondria have a long list of other functions regulating the cell proliferation and survival, inflammation, stress, and so on. The cells are taking a lot of care to keep our mitochondria healthy and well-functioning. And we are constantly building up new mitochondria in a process that is called mitochondrial biogenesis. And these new mitochondria, they get interconnected into networks they're really 3D networks inside our cells. If you see the picture, they are extremely beautiful to see. And these networks is where all this energy production happens. And mitochondria is a bit like ourselves, our own body. With the time, they get older or they can get stressed and they start to function less. I mean, there might be some reduced mitochondria. And in this case, the mitochondria are constantly checking the status of the mitochondria and they are fixing them or when this is not is possible, 
they have specific mechanism to remove dysfunctional mitochondria. And this last process is extremely important. It's called mitophagy. This word comes from Greek. It means literally eating mitochondria. So mitochondria are isolating and removing the bad mitochondria and keeping the healthy one. And you are asking me what happens when this quality control system don't work properly. The answer is quite logical. Since mitochondria are essential, if we start having issue with mitochondrial function, this affects the whole cellular and organismal health. And I can, it's really hard for me to tell you one disease, one problem where it is not caused or connected with mitochondrial dysfunction. Thanks for that introduction. We tend to think of mitochondria as the powerhouses of the cell, which is true. There's hundreds to thousands in cells, except for red blood cells. They are not only producing energy from the food that we eat and the air that we breathe, it's meats to make energy that the cells use, but they're involved in other types of functions as well that keep the cells functioning in other ways aside from just energy production. And they will go through this process where they fuse together and then they undergo fission where they then pull apart that's constantly happening in the background to support energy that the cell needs for all of its functions. I read a bit ago from fightaging.org that every single mechanism of aging that we know of is connected to mitochondria in some way. And it really stressed the importance of it to me. What happens with mitochondria as we age? What are some of the issues that occur during the aging process? Yeah, you introduced two concepts that I skipped in the previous question, which is the term mitochondrial fission and fusion. So talked about these networks and mitochondria are organized in networks that are dynamic. So they got fused and they got fragmented in smaller mitochondria. You can produce new mitochondria. Mitochondrial dynamics is extremely important to keep the mitochondria healthy. Upon aging, what happens is that this whole mitochondrial dynamic process is not functioning properly. And one thing that happens is that the old mitochondria are not replaced by new one, and they start to accumulate as dysfunctional organelles. In healthy cells, you have some well-organized networks. Upon aging, these mitochondria inside the network, they become thicker and bigger and more dysfunctional. And when the mitochondria become bigger, one problem is that the cells are not able to remove them. So this is a vicious cycle. The more we age, the more we accumulate this mitochondria. And if we are not able to induce mitophagy, then the mitochondrial mass and dysfunction will grow more and more. The larger they get, does that mean that it's harder to degrade them? It's really a physical issue where the cell is usually cutting this network into small pieces, isolating the bad mitochondria out of this network, and then is taking out this smaller bad mitochondria, putting around them an envelope, let's say, and then targeting them to specific machinery to degrade them. If these mitochondria are too big, then you can physically not isolate and remove them. In this sense, fragment this bigger mitochondria is an essential step to isolate the bad mitochondria and remove them through mitophagy. In the more recent study, you examined the role of RNA-binding proteins in the aging process. What are RNA-binding proteins? RNA-binding proteins, as the name says, are the class of proteins that are binding RNA. And what is RNA? RNA is a molecule that is containing our genetic information from the DNA and is used to produce proteins. So the information in our cells goes from the DNA, so it's our genome, then this information is passed through RNA and then from RNA to protein. 
Um, when we go from RNA to proteins, here we have the RNA binding proteins. So RNA binding proteins are essential to transmit the information from RNA to proteins. One mechanism is called protein translation. So the information in RNA is translated into another class of molecules called proteins. And proteins are the molecules that are doing a lot of essential things in our cell. They're one of the most important building blocks of our cells. I see. So what happens when RNA binding proteins function abnormally? What impact does that have in the body and in the disease process? Well, we have two effects. So as I said, RNA binding proteins are essential to translate RNA into proteins. When they are dysfunctional, this causes abnormal protein translation. And then depending on the protein, if the protein is essential for our cellular function, then the effect is reduced cellular health. And another effect is that a feature of RNA binding proteins is that they tend to aggregate, to stick one to each other and form bigger protein complexes. And this is something that happens normally in our cells, but it's a very dynamic process. So we have these aggregates and then they are rapidly removed. But in aging and in uh, some disease condition, this RNA binding protein, they stay stably in these aggregates and they have some toxic functions. There are a lot of examples of diseases and aging as well, where RNA binding proteins don't work properly, they aggregate and then they have detrimental effects on translation and cellular function. And you were looking at RNA binding proteins that are altered in the aging process in muscle and in the brain of animal tissues. Describe what your team did and are there any particular reasons why you chose to focus on muscle and the brain specifically? The reason is that RNA binding proteins are linked to many diseases. Alzheimer and Parkinson are linked with abnormal RNA binding protein function. ILS is another notable example. And most of these diseases are connected with neuronal tissue and muscle tissue. I mean, it's clear that muscle and brain are the tissue where RNA binding protein has a key role. And so it was quite obvious to check these tissue also in the context of aging. And what was interesting is that it's well known that mitochondrial function is declined upon aging, but it was not very clear the role of RNA binding proteins in the context of aging. So what we did is to use a number of aging studies that were done in the past. So studies where people were using, uh, were analyzing young animals and comparing them to old animals or young versus old individuals, so humans. And then they were checking which kind of molecules were changed. And I sorted only the RNA binding proteins that were changed upon aging. I crossed all this data set to make the analysis stronger and ended up with a short list of candidates that were RNA binding proteins modulated upon aging. And one was significantly changed in all the studies. This RNA binding protein is called this PUMCHU, P-U-M-CHU. The long name is PUMILIO-CHU. And in particular, in all this aging study, PUM2 was induced upon aging in muscle and brain tissue. So the more we age, the more PUM2 we had in the tissue. And this was the first finding. And the question that came out spontaneously is why? Clear that we have more PUM2, but what is the role of this high level of PUM2 when we age? This was the first exciting question. And the results pointed out to mitochondria again. 
here. We link back to mitochondria that we discussed in the beginning with RNA binding proteins. So Pumilia, does it rise linearly across the lifespan or is there a period where all of a sudden its aggregation starts to increase? Is that happening at a certain time in the lifespan? This we couldn't really do. Most aging studies that we analyzed were really heterogeneous. So we were doing very simple comparison of young versus old. And we were doing it in different species. So we were using mice, humans, worms called C. elegans. They are nematodes and are a very nice model organism for aging. And they are all different in terms of age, of course. In mice, we checked animals that were around 20 months old, which correspond to 60, 65 years in humans. But we didn't do a linear analysis, so we don't know when this starts. We just know that this protein is higher in older organisms across species, whether it's mice, humans, or nematodes. Yeah, that's correct. How exactly does PUM2 affect mitochondrial function? Good question. So we use an approach that is called the omics, and basically we analyze a lot of different effects of PUM2 on our RNA, on our proteins, on our metabolism, and the goal was to see which was the specific target of PUM2. I don't go into details, but by crossing all this multiomic analysis, we identified one specific target that is called MFF, and this stands for mitochondrial fission factor. We talked about mitochondrial fission in the beginning of our discussion. So this is a key component of the mitochondrial dynamic process. And in particular, mitochondrial fission is the process by which a mitochondrial network is fragmented into smaller mitochondria. And we already said this is a key step to allow the cell to sort the bad mitochondria and remove them through mitophagy. So this was actually very cool because we linked an RNA binding protein in aging with mitochondrial function, which is a well-known hallmark of aging. You mentioned earlier that older mitochondria form these large networks and they can't divide and then clear them out through mitophagy. So what is the relationship then with PUM2 and this mitochondrial fusion factor? Does PUM2 suppress that, therefore inhibiting the process of fusion in mitochondria? Exactly. So going more into the mechanism, what is happening is that in old tissue, there is an accumulation of Pumilio 2. Pumilio 2 is an RNA binding protein and is binding the mRNA of MFF, of mitochondrial fission factor. And the binding of PUM2 to MFF is repressive. So PUM2 is blocking the translation of MFF mRNA. So we have less MFF with more PUM2. And the consequence is to have more PUM2, to have less MFF, and as a consequence, reduced mitochondrial fission. And since mitochondrial fission is essential for mitophagy, the very final consequence is that PUM2 is reducing also mitophagy. And this is extremely important in the context of aging. What happens if you somehow can affect PUM2 or MFF directly? Would that increase mitophagy and then have an effect on health spans? I know that you took a look at that in the nematode. What happened when you depleted the PUM2 ortholog in that animal model? So if we have PUM2, we have less mitophagy. So our expectation was that removing PUM2 would have led to increased mitochondrial fission and mitophagy. And this was the case. We used the nematode first because it's a simple model to work with. And we did some evolutionary analysis to see which was the warm protein that corresponded to PUM2. And this was called PUF8. 
<laughs> we removed PUF8 from the worms and we saw a number of things. We checked, first of all, the mitochondria and the old worms, they have this big dysfunctional mitochondria. And when we removed PUF8, this big mitochondria become smaller and the network was much better organized and was similar to the young worms. So we really reverted the age-associated phenotype. We have better mitochondria. The mitochondria, they respire, they produce more energy. And what was more interesting is that these worms with better mitochondria, they were healthier. They were moving more, they were moving faster. Ultimately, they were living longer. And how did moving from the nematode model into the murine model, what did you do there to reduce the activity of PUM2? Well, we removed Pumchu from the muscle of old mice. We used a different strategy to achieve this. We used the CRISPR-Cas9 technology. It's relatively recent, but it's very promising and extremely exciting, the science behind this technique. Basically, these are genomic molecular scissors. You have these proteins that are able to recognize very specific regions of our DNA and modify or remove them. So what we did is to use this CRISP scissor to target the gene encoding for PUM2. So CRISP was cutting the PUM2 gene, and in this way we ended up having muscles without PUM2. What were some of the effects that you saw after being able to successfully crop out PUM2? From the muscle, we saw the results that were consistent with what we observed in the nematodes. So the old mice had in the beginning this giant dysfunctional mitochondria. And after removing Pumchu, this mitochondrial network was again resembling networks from young animals. So we had better net mitochondrial networks, more mitochondrial fission, more mitophagy, and ultimately more mitochondrial function. The whole axis was conserved in C. elegans and in mice. Were you able to then observe any behavioral changes in the older mice? Were they also moving more and moving faster? Well, this we couldn't check because working with mice, it's a bit more complex, especially using CRISP. So to make the whole system very efficient, we targeted CRISP only in one muscle. So we could analyze the function of the one muscle. But this is an excellent question and would be a beautiful follow-up of this paper. So to be able to remove Pumchu from different muscle and see the effects on muscle function. I could imagine if you see that work where we now have evidence to support cropping out PUM2 with Cas9, that you'd see the mitochondrial networks appearing to be healthier and having enhanced respiration capabilities. If the next step then could be do that in living mice and then do the older mice function well, that would certainly give way to early stage investigation. Into in the humans, well... This would be great. I think that using CRISP to remove PUM in aging is a bit hard, I would say. CRISP is an extremely useful tool to remove and to correct very specific genetic disorder. I'm talking about mutations that can cause dystrophies or other diseases. So probably that's a bit, let's say, a high-hanging fruit. What is clear from this study is that the mechanism of mitochondrial dynamics and mitophagy is essential in aging. So even if we cannot target Pumchu to improve mitophagy, we might find other strategies to get the same results, which might be even more efficient. Obviously, taking care of our mitochondria is really important for our health long term. Might there be pharmacological interventions or even nutraceutical interventions? Do we know anything that represses PUM2 activity or enhances MMF activity from a compound perspective? 
From a compound perspective, no, there are no compounds known to inhibit Kumsu, but the field of mitochondrial dynamics and especially mitophagy is growing in the last years. So there are not many proven efficient ways to improve mitophagy, mitochondrial function in the market now, but this is a very exciting field. And I mentioned in the beginning that I'm working in a startup and this is exactly the field I'm working in. What we are doing is to find new strategies, sort of next generation exosiatics to improve mitochondrial function, mitophagy and cellular health. This paper is showing a new mechanism and I think the future is now to find some compounds that are efficiently targeting mitophagy to improve cellular health in aging and related conditions. You're looking for compounds that might affect cellular health and muscular health and specifically looking at natural compounds that might do so? Exactly. We're looking for derivatives of natural compounds to improve cellular health. What do you think are some cutting-edge strategies that people could employ now to take care of their mitochondria today? There are two strategies that we can follow to improve mitochondrial function at the moment. One is exercise and one is nutrition. Exercise is one of the best ways to improve our mitochondrial function. This is uh, well-studied and well-known. And the second one is nutrition, which is also extremely important because we need to be extremely committed to exercise and to maintain our mitochondrial function. Talk about smart nutrition because mm. sometimes it's not enough what we are eating, even if we consider it healthy. But we need to think that each of us needs to tailor our nutritional habits depending on ourself, our genetic background, our microbiome, which is the pool of bacteria that are in our intestine and that are converting what we are eating in the active molecules. And this is one of the exciting fields of research I'm following in Amazentis. That connection is so important. It's not always understood or appreciated. And people might be doing those strategies now without even realizing it. But if we do have greater understanding of it, we might be able to capitalize it on more effectively. It's good to exercise. It's good to have a healthy nutrition. But we need really to take care about what we are eating, depending also on these other parameters like the microbiome that we harbor. And fasting too. If you can figure out how to accelerate mitophagy and then could induce it with a fasting regimen, could you amplify the benefits of a fast with the inclusion of certain natural compounds or techniques that make mitophagy double or triple in that couple-day fast? That would be very interesting too. Absolutely. Well, Davide, thank you so much for coming on to talk about this extraordinarily interesting connection and the process by which you went down that path to identify this as a fruitful area for further investigation. I'm excited to keep an eye on your company and see what you guys come up with. Really appreciate your time today. Thank you very much, Dan. Thanks for listening and come visit us soon at humanos.me.